A day that was supposed to be full of joy and celebrations quickly turned deadly as hundreds of children were exposed to a chemical weapon. In the chaos that ensued, lives were lost. And the reason for the attack in the first place? Money. A rival business suffering financially decided that drastic measures would need to be taken in order to increase their profits. But things went horribly wrong. And with what happened in South Africa in these last two weeks, this tragedy brings to light, once again, many societal issues. This is the case of the Throb nightclub tragedy. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. This case was actually suggested by a fellow TikTok follower. And to be honest, prior to their message, I had absolutely no clue that this had even happened. And that in itself is a travesty, as it appears that many of the lessons that should have been learned from this incident have not been, especially in regards to the engagement of minors in places that they really should not be. But let's get into it. On the 24th of March in the year 2000, a Friday, the first school term had just ended for many children in South Africa. And so, to celebrate, many parties were thrown. One such event took place in Chatsworth in Durban. This event was known at the time as a matinee. Matinees would be held at a nightclub and would operate for a short period of time during the day, usually between 1pm and 5pm. These events would be much cheaper than the nighttime events and thus they attracted a much younger crowd, often underage. So they were basically the equivalent of a house party. The event I'm about to discuss was taking place at the Throb nightclub in Fragrant Street, Chatsworth, in Durban, KwaZulu-Natal. Chatsworth is an area in the south of Durban. During the 1950s, the South African government at the time established the area as a way to segregate the Indian population and create a buffer between the white suburbs of the north and the black townships of the south. Under apartheid, it was classified as an Indian township. To this day, it is populated by individuals of Indian-Asian descent. During the years of the past, the Indian population fought hard for access to education. This area in particular became a place for movement, for gathering, for unity. During the years of the past, the Indian population fought hard for access to education, something that was not seen as important for those who were not white. And as the years went on, the population of the area grew and developed. And today, Chatsworth is a bustling suburb, a deeply cultural location within Durban, home to many hardworking families. During the time of this incident though, 22 years ago, Research had shown that the area and many of the inhabitants were still in the throes of poverty, with high levels of unemployment, much like the initial and earliest residents of the area. Many children were also not in school as their parents could not afford the school fees. 
So it was here in Chatsworth on this day as the end of term was celebrated that a cunning plan that would have tragic consequences was put into motion. The perpetrators had begun by parking minibuses outside of the club. And the plan? Well, it was to detonate a tear gas canister inside the nightclub. It would also later be alleged that this particular tear gas canister originated from a police officer who was investigated when everything came to light. But back to the plan. According to the plan, once the panicked children had run outside, the men would be waiting to take them to Silver Slipper, a rival nightclub that had not been doing too well financially. Ultimately, the goal of the plan was to steal and acquire the income and profit from the individuals attending the Throb nightclub. The thing is though, this wasn't even the first time that this particular nightclub had been targeted. Just 14 months prior to this event, on the 13th of February 1999, a tear gas cylinder had been set off in the club, leaving all of those who were present gasping for air, but luckily and remarkably, no casualties. Apparently, according to the co-owner of the club, Srini Govinder, the incident was reported to the police. But when he had followed up, the file had mysteriously disappeared. But who is to know the truth though? So back to May of the year 2000. One of the men, the alleged mastermind, also happened to be the co-owner and manager of the rival club, Silver Slipper. And coincidentally, they also happened to host matinee sessions. It was this man who allegedly roped the other men in, as well as supplied them with the tear gas cylinder. His name was Sivanathan Bolton Chetty, and he was 38 years old at the time, married with two children. And he was also conveniently nowhere near the Throb nightclub when everything went down. But another three men, namely Vincent Pillay, who was 29 years old and worked as a bouncer at the Silver Slipper, Dayalan Sana Pillay, who was 20 years old, and Salvin Dogma Naidu, who was 24 years old, were present. They had all entered the packed nightclub and Vincent Pillay had smuggled the tear gas canister inside. And when I say packed, I mean packed. Some reports stated that there were around 600 participants, other reports stated 900 or close to 1000. So whilst the party was in full force about two hours in, Naidu had placed the tear gas canister behind a speaker on the nightclub dance floor and he had detonated it. Within moments, pandemonium broke out and the plan went tragically wrong as apparently the door to the fire escape was locked and the sign was not illuminated and thus the only exit was down the narrow staircase and through the entrance. And like I mentioned, at the time, there were over 500 individuals in the club. So what exactly does tear gas do? Tear gas is commonly used within riot control, as once it reaches your eyes, it can cause excessive tearing, hence the name, burning or blurred vision, as well as coughing, shortness of breath, and a burning sensation inside of the nose, as well as the feeling of choking. And these are precisely the symptoms that the partygoers began to experience. And of course, like anyone would, they began to panic. They all began to rush to get outside. A stampede thus ensued as they rushed downstairs to the narrow staircase to make their way down to the exit. And during this commotion, a brick wall that was next to this narrow staircase collapsed, 
crushing some children with others toppling down on top of it. Some partygoers, all children, were caught in the stampede and trampled to death. Some never made it out, and some went to lie outside, seriously injured, crying in pain. And as a court would later hear, jewelry, cell phones, and even Nike shoes were looted from the dead and injured after the stampede. One of the men who was involved in the actions that led up to this tragedy would later state that he was aware that a gang operated in the areas known as the Dre Boys and they often would target children and rob them at nightclubs. Super classy. After the stampede, Naidu had given Vincent Pillay 170 rand as well as a cell phone to contact him in case he needed anything. It also just so happened that the club was about 140 meters away from the local police station. Within minutes of receiving distressed calls, officers had rushed to the scene and the sight that met them was shocking. There was the pungent smell of gas in the air and all that could be heard were the screams of terrified children and bystanders. Parents had begun to rush to the scene, frantically calling out and searching for their children. Keep in mind, this was a time when every single person having a cell phone was not really a thing, especially in lower income families within South Africa. I mean, the first cell phone was only introduced in South Africa in 1994. Many of these parents were not even aware that their children had gone out in the first place until they had returned home from work. The crime scene then had to be barricaded to avoid parents from getting in. Parents had then frantically gone from the crime scene to the police station to the nearby hospital. One of the police officers on the scene from the Chatsworth police station, Hasina Pillay, was instrumental in finding some form of order amongst the chaos and assisting the terrified parents. She had asked the officials on scene to take all the bodies of the children that they had uncovered to a big office within the police station. It was here that she had laid sheets down on the floor, sheets she had acquired from the local linen shop. And then she set to work, laying each body down and placing their arms at their sides. She knew that this was the best she could do for the parents of these young victims. She didn't want the parents to see them in that disheveled way. The officers who were on shift at the time stayed on for the entire weekend, combing through the scene, trying to find any clues to what had truly happened. But very soon, these officers and the local precinct would face major backlash from the community. Why, you may ask? Well, for failing to police a nightclub, where underage children gained entry, paying only 12 rand each. Their issue was that the police did not check on these popular locations to enforce the rules against minors being present in the club. And it also didn't help much that this very police station was already under scrutiny for the SBV robbery, where four of their officers were on trial for masterminding a heist that resulted in them acquiring 31 million rand. It was the largest heist in South Africa to date at that point. So one could say that not very many in the community were very trusting or looked too kindly upon these officers at this precinct. And the police minister at the time, 
Jackie Celebi echoed the community sentiments by stating that the officers were not carrying out their duties correctly and efficiently, which resulted in the tragic event. Mind you, this is the very same man who was later found guilty of corruption and sentenced to 15 years imprisonment in August of 2010. He, however, was paroled on medical grounds less than a year after beginning his sentence due to suffering a stroke, having kidney problems and diabetes. He died five years later as a result of a kidney-related illness. But I digress. Soon the numbers came to light and the true magnitude of this tragic event was understood. The youngest victim was 11 years old, and the total death count was at 13, with almost all of them being children. Over 150 children were injured, with some of them even trying to hide their injuries from their parents. I'm assuming to avoid getting into trouble. The injured parties suffered mainly cuts, respiratory problems, and head injuries. One of the male victims, Rory Subramani, was 15 years old at the time, and he died a hero. After getting out, he had returned to help more children. But on one of his loops back into the club, the wall had collapsed upon him, breaking his neck and ending his life. But he was not the only victim. Mahasivan Nolan Pillay was 17 years old at the time and was in secondary school. Sumeya Kudus was 15 years old at the time and a grade 11 pupil. Leosha Felicia Saramuthu was 14 years old at the time and a grade 10 student. Chantal Madure was 16 years old and a grade 11 student. Jadeen Mohanlal was 11 years old, the youngest victim, and she was only in grade 7 at the time. Vinishri Karen Pillay was 15 years old at the time and in grade 11. Sumeya Jetam and Preston Premsing were 13 years old. Sumeshan Govinda was only 12. Guresh Naidu and Priyan Gavansami were 15 years old at the time. Junaid Gafur was 18 years old and he died while saving the lives of other children. 13 innocent lives lost. The community were outraged and it would soon become apparent that one of their own or a few of their own were to blame. Sivanathan Chetty handed himself over to the police on Saturday morning. This came about after he was allegedly identified by one of the other men involved, Dayalan Pillay, who was 20 years old at the time. Pillay ended up providing evidence for the state in return for indemnity against prosecution. Chetty, along with the other two men involved, Vincent Pillay and Selvan Naidu, were then arrested. Dayalan Pillay maintained that he had only accompanied the accused. As I mentioned, he had turned state witness, but this was apparently only after having been stabbed and beaten up in prison whilst awaiting trial. He, however, was later acquitted of all charges. He had gone on to say, I am very sorry for the families of the children, but it wasn't meant to happen the way it did. I'd like to ask for forgiveness and to be part of the Chatsworth community again. The three remaining men, Pillay, Naidu and Chetty, had decided to abandon their bail applications after outraged protesters chanting and carrying placards had broken through a metal fence surrounding the court. 
These men decided that they were safer in police custody. They also struggled to find legal representation due to their pariah status within the community, as you can imagine. As the dust settled, police were left to ascertain the exact timeline of events. According to documentation that I read, there was also a large emphasis placed upon ensuring that the injured pupils who were highly traumatized received a psychological treatment as soon as possible. This psychological intervention was also essential, as many of the individuals would need to be interviewed in order to paint the full picture of the horrific day. This psychological intervention was also essential as many of the individuals would need to be interviewed in order to put together the pieces of this horrific day. And so for many, life continued. It was one year after the tragic event that the case was heard in the Durban High Court. Judge Jan Hugo presided over the case. Many of the witnesses who testified during the trial were teenagers who had either been badly injured in the stampede or who had witnessed the death of their peers. During this trial, it was even alleged by Chetty's own son that he had been in the club along with his cousins, Chetty's nieces and nephews, that very day. But the group of them had made it out unharmed. However, that story later came under scrutiny as facts given from his account changed over time. Many believed that he was just trying to prove that his father was not involved in this plan. During the state witness Dialen Pillay's testimony, he had said that Chetty knew about the effects of the tear gas canister because Chetty had been a police reservist. Vincent Pillay and Salvin Naidu had corroborated Dialen's statements, going as far to also state that Chetty had called for Dialen's death, claiming he could not be trusted to be kept quiet. Naidu claimed that he had been offered 5,000 rand and a gun to silence Dialen. Chetty repeatedly shook his head and smiled while Pele was testifying. And in a strange turn of events, the other co-owner of Silver Slipper, Goni Naidu, was apparently linked to the notorious Chatsworth gang, the Dre Boys, who are known for their drug dealing and stealing. Some members allegedly also have a tattoo on their arm, a GFS, standing for Goni's fighting soldiers. Apparently, Vincent Pillay, who worked for the Silver Slipper, as I earlier mentioned, also admitted to having such a tattoo. But no matter how far I searched, I wasn't able to find any pictures or information to back that up. So, who knows? Whilst in prison awaiting the trial, both Pele and Naidu were attacked and stabbed, allegedly by a member of a gang. Now, whether there is truth to that and a link to the GFS or the Dre Boys, we cannot know for sure. I'm just giving you the facts that I've heard and read about. Chetty, whilst giving testimony, also refuted claims that had been made. That he had bribed Vincent Pillay's father with 70,000 rand and a bag of Mandrax tablets to stop Vincent from becoming state witness. It was also argued in court that he had sent the three men off to Umkamas with relatives as he realized the police search was getting closer to him. During his testimony, it was evident to the judge 
that his accounts were fraught with lies and inconsistencies, in the judge's own words. During a bail application in May, he had allegedly attempted to speak to the magistrate in private, even offering to become a state witness, actions that he later denied. He was described by the prosecution, who had said, saying he is thrifty with the truth is paying him a compliment. He is an outrageous liar. During the trial, one of the surviving victims, Therusia Moodley, who was 16 years old at the time, gave heartfelt testimony as to the effects of the tragedy on her life. She had been in ICU, unconscious for five days, her left leg broken in two places with severe burns on her body. She also had facial bruising and had lost a front tooth. Her life was forever changed. Her academic and sporting life affected significantly. Another victim who was 15 years old, Sumeshni Palay, lost her best friend in the event. She testified as to how she was in the bathroom when she heard the screams. She went on to state, My eyes were burning. My skin felt as if something was eating it. I couldn't breathe. I was frightened and scared and I thought I would never see daylight again. The reason why I am here today is because the deceased cannot speak for themselves. I speak on behalf of them and I want justice done because it is not fair that their lives were taken. She had a phone on her and so she had called the police eventually fainting in the bathroom due to the fumes. However, she was later carried out to safety. It was also noted during the trial that there were structural and building issues within the club. The exit signs were not illuminated, the balustrade was not anchored to the ground, and the wall that had collapsed did not comply with building regulations. Taking all the testimony into account, and after careful deliberation, Judge Hugo handed down the harshest sentence ever given at the time for culpable homicide. All four men had initially pleaded not guilty. As I mentioned, Dialan Tyrant Palay had turned state witness and he was acquitted of all charges. The remaining three men, Naidu, Palay and Chetty, had all pleaded not guilty. The three men, however, were convicted on 13 counts of culpable homicide, 56 counts of common assault, and one count of illegal possession of tear gas. They were originally charged with murder and assault to do grievous bodily harm. Sivan Nathan Chetty was sentenced to 19 and a half years in prison. Vincent Pillay and Salvin Dogman Naidu were each sentenced to 15 years and a further six months each for illegal possession of tear gas. They received a lesser sentence, as the judge felt they acted not on their own but on Chetty's orders, and they were of low intellect, believing Chetty's narrative that no one would be hurt. Judge Hugo had said, Nothing this court can say or do can bring back the people who died, but this court can send out a message that this act of violence will not be tolerated. The community, however, were hoping for longer sentences for all of the men involved. Some of the community were not pleased with the sentence, calling for a more harsh and longer term. But exactly the opposite was put into motion. During an appeal, the sentences of Pillay and Naidu were reduced to six years and six 
months. After the appeal court found that while the palpable anger of the community from which the victims came is entirely justified and fully understandable, it was a strong mitigating factor that the two appellants were economically vulnerable and exploited by Chetty, who requisitioned them to place and activate the tear gas canister. Salvin Naidu, who was a former security guard, and Vincent Pillay, who was the bouncer at the Silver Slipper, were both from working-class families who lived in small council flats. Due to their intellectual abilities, they were unable to find work, so their income was limited, and they were motivated by the allure of quick and easy money. Naidu Pillay and Dayalan Pillay were also living together at the time when Chetty had approached them to commit the act. Dayalan Pillay was best friends at the time with Salvin Naidu, who was Vincent Pillay's cousin. The group were therefore quite familiar with one another. In December of 2004, Vincent Pillay was granted an early release from prison. And in February of 2005, Salvin Naidu was also granted an early release from Mzuntu prison. They had served around five years each. Naidu's whereabouts are unknown and Pillay has declined any interviews with the media, stating that he has moved on with his life. And so that left Chetty. Chetty's release on parole was met with anger from the families of the victims. It later appeared that very few, if any, had received notice of his parole hearing. One parent had allegedly only received the notification letter about his hearing the day after his hearing was held. Even the attorney for some of the Throb victims, Stephen Samuel, only heard about the parole when he was contacted by the media for a comment. Many felt, and rightly so, that the Department of Correctional Services had failed their duties and obligations. Chetty was released on parole in May of 2006 after serving six years of his sentence. Whilst in prison, he had also obtained a theology degree. Upon his release, the Chatsworth community refused for him to live back in the area. And so he had moved to Peter Maritzburg with his family. He is now apparently a taxi owner who is also involved in the church youth department. He stated that he was haunted by the incident and wanted to do community work to make up for his actions. In a statement read through his attorney, he had said, I want to take this opportunity to publicly apologize to all those who were directly and indirectly affected by the Throb incident. I apologize to the families whose children lost their lives in the stampede. I am remorseful for my actions and am willing to do any kind of community work to make up for what has happened and to create a more peaceful society for all. I have spent the minimum time required according to my sentence and have been rehabilitated. I wish to return to society to be with my wife and kids and I plan to start a new life and put the past behind me. He then went on to state that he wanted closure, and he blamed the media for reopening old wounds every time they covered memorial events or anniversaries of the tragic day. On a side note, I think it's interesting for the convicted perpetrator of a crime to have this extreme desire for no one to speak about their actions in a bid to help them to move on. 
Look, I get it. People can change and perhaps see the wrong in the actions that they have been a part of. But at the end of the day, the damage has been done. Lives have been lost. And in this case, as a direct result of his actions. And there's no road back from that. Imagine telling the families of victims to stop dredging up the incident that changed their lives, that you caused, because you want to move on. There is no expiry date on grief. So I had a comment on a video of a case I had covered on my TikTok account the other day, basically asking me why I was still talking about an incident that occurred a decade ago. Upon further inspection, it turned out that the person who commented was actually the partner of the perpetrator of that crime and murder, might I add. And yes, that person was also their partner at the time of the crime. That fact aside though, the point I'm trying to get across is that history matters. It allows us to understand what led to the present moment, and it allows us to understand not only our country, our homeland, but ourselves. And most importantly, history should aid us in learning from the mistakes of the past. However, it is evident after seeing the latest tragedy within South Africa, namely the loss of 21 young lives in a tavern, that much work needs to be done. If you're in South Africa, I'm pretty sure by now you would have heard about the Inyobeni Tavern tragedy. If not, I actually covered it last week on my TikTok account, so here's what you missed. 21 young people between the ages of 14 and 20 inexplicably and tragically have passed on in a tavern in the Eastern Cape. 17 of these people were minors and the youngest victim was only 13 years old. There is so much speculation regarding the incident, but here's what we do know and what has been confirmed. This past weekend, the Inyobeni Tavern, an allegedly popular hangout spot for so many underage children, hosted an event to celebrate the end of exams. The invitation had promised free Wi-Fi and photo shoots, rounds of alcohol and a good time. It also made mention of the term kuzofiwa. This is a slang term for it's going to be a great time. However, a more direct translation, there is going to be death. The wording on that invitation foreshadowed the tragic events that were to unfold. Video footage and photos from earlier in the night showcased the sheer number of people who turned out for this event. But before the night was over, things turned deadly. The victims' bodies were found slumped over chairs and couches or on the floor in a circle. There were no signs of visible injuries. Like I said, there is no known cause of death yet, but forensic investigators were dispatched to the scene and bodies have been sent to Cape Town for further and faster forensic analysis to determine the cause of death. Once the news hit the media, it went international and there have been so many rumors and speculation around what has happened. Some people believe poisonous gas was used. Other statements say that a bouncer prohibited people from exiting the club. Another account says that the hooker pipe was laced. And of course, there are the rumors that this was part of a darker and nefarious plan. This tragic event has also raised important issues regarding children being exposed and allowed into such environments. And many have directed the blame to the parents of these victims. 
regardless, please be respectful to the friends and families of the victims. No one wants to or should be subjected to seeing photos of their loved ones, deceased, being shared online for clickbait or views. This investigation is open and pending and has garnered attention from our police minister, Becky Tele. Do stick around though as I'll be sure to update you as soon as more information comes to light that has been confirmed by reputable and trusted sources. The common occurrence of youth as young as 11 years old in places that are largely reserved for adults and those of age has unfortunately not changed. And there are many parties at blame. Within the Inyobeni tragedy, the parents of the children were largely placed at the center of the blame. And I totally understand the community's reasoning for those beliefs, but there's so much more to it. Firstly, it is the responsibility of establishments to ensure that they only let in the correct crowd, i.e. those over the age of 18. But unfortunately, in a world where money is often the ruling belief system, this seemingly common and ethical principle is often lost. As it was evident within the Throb tragedy, money was to blame, essentially. And of course, reckless behavior. But the root of this issue was financial gain. And this is evident once again in the Enyobeni Tavern case, which is still ongoing. The seemingly small things like presenting an ID, as well as being over the age of 18, the legal drinking age in South Africa, is often overlooked in a bid to bring more feet through the doors. Another key role player to these taverns and underage parties continuing to exist is the non-existent police presence and action in overseeing such places. In the case of Inyobeni, which happened just last month, there had been images of the party goers for an extended period of time on social media pages, which showcased just how young some of them were. Of course, this was not the case in the year 2000 when technology was not near as advanced. However, I am sure that many saw these children entering and exiting the party venues and said nothing. The famous African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child, comes to mind here. It takes the actions and involvement of many, first and foremost of parents, and then of law enforcement and officials, schools and the community in general, to ensure the safety and security of the developing minds of society. And whilst it is the responsibility of the parent, first and foremost, to ensure a safe environment for their child, at the end of the day, kids will be kids. Teenagers will be teenagers. They are going to do exactly what they want. And so these tragedies also highlight the need for youth centers, places of safety and entertainment for children and teenagers. Yes, it is completely normal for the youth to want to hang out with their friends and party, but knowing this information, communities need to ensure that there are safe places for them to do so. In October of 2003, the Chatsworth Youth Center was opened. It was later renamed to the Nelson Mandela Community Youth Center after the man who had opened it. This center became a central hub 
which to this day advocates for health and wellness, after-school tuition classes, as well as specific groups for those with different ages or interests. Although there are still many social ills and high unemployment levels in the area, this centre helps to provide just one more place of safety for those most vulnerable. After the incident, community and religious leaders also started campaigns to ensure that learners would keep safe during the holidays. They made sure that the youth were aware of the tragic events of 2000 in order for them not to repeat themselves. The club was eventually closed and the venue was turned into a church. There is also news of revival of the bursary fund that was initially set up in 2000 after the tragedy. The fund has 280,000 rand currently in its bank account and was established to assist needy children within the academic sphere. So in some ways, the actions of the past have affected the way in which the Chatsworth community have developed measures for the future. History is vital and history has aided many to ensure that the errors of the past are not unnecessarily repeated. But most importantly, history has not been forgotten. A monument was carved and constructed after the tragedy and unveiled on the 25th of March 2001, a year and a day after the tragic incident. And at the bottom of the brick and granite mould, the names of the 13 children who lost their lives are engraved. Some of these remain and some have faded due to exposure to the elements and time. Some of the words have since faded with time and age, but it reads, The living close their eyes of the dead, but the dead open the eyes of the living. Years may go by, tears may dry, but our memories of you shall remain forevermore. You are always with us in the softness of the rain and the golden rays of the sun. May you rest, little ones. But unlike the statue, to their friends and family, they will never be forgotten or erased. Thank you for taking your time today to listen to their narratives, remember their lives, their bravery, and their untimely passings. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!